Amen, indeed. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us for worship here at the Branch Church Milledgeville on this Lord's Day. It's great to see each of you here, especially on this rainy day. Um, In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, What heights of love, what depths of peace when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. We're just saying those words. This morning as we continue our study through 1 John, we will see the love of Christ through the believers how we are supposed to love one another. That's the title of the sermon this morning, Love One Another. Our passage will be 1 John 3, verses 11 through 24. Before I move on, happy Father's Day to all of our fathers here this morning. Um, It's a high duty, a high calling to be a dad, to be an earthly father, certainly. God gives us children if he chooses to do so for a purpose. Proverbs says that they are arrows in our quiver. Arrows, after all, are what? A weapon. A weapon to be fired out upon whatever, to strike a blow. Fathers, how are you training up your children? How will you train up your children? Will they seek after the world? Will they pursue Christ? When you fire that arrow out of your quiver, where will it go? What will it strike? And for whose glory will it do so? Jonathan Edwards, as he was on his deathbed, knowing he was near death, he wrote a letter to his daughter Lucy, and he said this, As to my children, you are now to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to seek a father who will never fail you. There is a father who will never fail, a father who has never failed, our heavenly father. By God's grace, we can know him. We can enjoy his love. We can enjoy the blessedness of being his children for he will never leave us nor forsake us. Our main point this morning, again in 1 John verses 11 through 24, is this. Assurance as a follower of Jesus is known as we love one another and have a heart confidence given by God, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Remember to whom John is originally addressing his three epistles here in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John originally addressing it to the same local churches likely that he addressed and wrote to in Revelation. To what purpose? Well, the church was being pursued by false teachers, by false doctrine, false theology, false teachings from the Word of God. John is recalling to their attention, and ours as well, what it is that unites them and unites us, thereby how it is They were, and we are, to live in Christ. Last week, Pastor Kyle walked through 
in particular, 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10, for us and with us, which conveys this, that genuine believers, genuine followers of Christ, will practice righteousness. The true child of God, the one who has been saved by the grace of God through the work of Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, will not keep on sinning. Now, this is not to say that you won't sin, because we all know that. We sin. Every day we sin, but here's the point. We'll not make it a practice of sinning. The true child of God will not be of the world, and thereby the world will not know you. The world will not look upon you as one of their own. What unites us as repentant sinners who make up the Branch Church Milledgeville? What unites us? I can tell you it's not our favorite ball team or whatever. We certainly are not united in that. Who we want to win the U.S. Open today or the basketball playoffs tonight. What unites us? Three particular things. First, our union in and with Christ. Number one, our union in and with Christ, not our union in the world and with the world. Second, the power of the Holy Spirit. There can be no true union in our fellowship in this faith family if it not be through the power of the Holy Spirit because certainly it cannot come from power in and of ourselves. And then third, our affirmation of biblical doctrine. Sound biblical doctrine. Not anything outside of the Bible. God's word over all else. See, that's the point of God's word. It must override all else in this world. Anything we hope to learn, anything we study in school or at work or or at home, whatever, whenever, it must fall under the word of God. Nothing, nothing can be added to, no matter societal whims, pressures, or otherwise, nothing can be added to the word of God. The word of God must over, over, overrule, reign over, override everything, everything in life. Listen to this quote from Stephen Lawson. He said, the new birth, the new birth that we are given in Christ, the new birth gives a new mind, new heart, new desires, new affections, new loves, new life, and a new destiny. All things are made new. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What has happened to the old? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We've been given new life in Christ Jesus. Thereby, we are to live a new way. We are to present a life in Christ that is not like our old self, that is not like the world. Today, as we study 1 John 3, 11 through 24, we have a blessed opportunity. First, to be reminded that genuine believers reveal love to and for other believers. We are called to love one another. Each of us are called to love each of us in this body. Next, to be assured 
that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. To have that assurance, that confident assurance, that you may then walk, walk in Christ, live in confidence, seeking to think, to desire, to speak, and do all to the glory of God. Why? To what end? For what purpose? All to know God and to enjoy him forever. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you once again for a truly blessed opportunity first to gather, to gather as your church together in this building, to worship you, to give you not only what you are due, but what you desire to the uttermost. Thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, thank you that you give understanding, that you bring conviction, that you bring comfort, that you bring direction as we open this word, Lord, your word. I pray that you guide us, that you teach us, that you lead us as you will. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. Love one another, do not hate verses 11 through 15. Let's first look back at chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verses 11 through 24 here in chapter 3, it can be said are an exposition by John of chapter 3, verse 10. Plain and simple. I mean, really, I could just stand up here and read these verses, and it would be a complete exposition of what John laid out in verse three, verse ten, rather, of chapter three. Especially to close that verse. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. What does it mean to love his brother? What does it mean to love one another? John goes through this in this passage, in verses 11 through 24. John knew, he absolutely knew what true believers were facing in this time. False teachers not only misunderstood the nature and person of Christ, thereby displaying disobedience to his commands, they also displayed no love toward true believers. No sign of Christ in their lives. No desire for Christ in their lives. Join me in reading verses 11 through 15. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In verses 11 and 12, in verse 11, we see these words from the beginning. This is a theme, a very common theme throughout these three epistles written by John. Seen first in chapter 1, verse 1, again in chapter 2, verse 7. This message that John refers to here is 
the message that they first heard from the apostolic evangelists that came to them to preach the gospel message. This is not the Old Testament prophetic message. This is the message that these believers first heard from those who shared the gospel with them, who taught God's word to them. That's what they heard when the gospel was very first preached to them. The message they heard from the beginning has its origin in Jesus Christ and in him alone. This is the first of six references in these three epistles to the command of Jesus that as his disciples we are to love one another. This is also the first reflection on the upper room discourse when Christ was gathered with the disciples before his being arrested and taken away to be crucified. John takes the words of Jesus from John 13, 34, John 15, 12, and John chapter 17 and 18, issuing the call of Christ to love one another as we are in Christ. The opening exhortation here in 1 John 3, verses 11 through 24, to love is followed by the negative, hateful example of Cain. This is the only Old Testament reference in this letter. John does not expound on the Cain and Abel story here. He expected that the people there knew that narrative, knew what occurred. But for us here this morning, let me remind ourselves. You can find it in Genesis chapter 4, primarily in verses 4 through 7 there. As a reminder, Cain and Abel were the first two sons of Adam and Eve. They both brought sacrifices to God as God had directed them to do and worship to him, to honor him as God. God accepted Abel's sacrifice but rejected Cain's. We're not told exactly why in Genesis that this occurred, what Cain did wrong. We just know that his sacrifice was not honoring to God. As we're told in Hebrews 11.4, Abel's offering was acceptable to God. Not simply because it was an animal, that it was a blood sacrifice, that it was the best animal, the first of the flock. Not because it was the very best he had. Not even that his sacrifice was a culminating event to reveal a zeal, a fervor, a desire for God. Abel gave obediently. Abel acted in obedience. Following the groundwork given by God, even though we're not privy to what God exactly told them to do. We can gather, given how God instructs his church in the Old Testament to sacrifice to him what it was that God might have told them, but Abel acted obediently. And Abel, as we're told in Hebrews, acted by faith. Yet Cain outwardly worshiped God, it appears, didn't he? He sacrificed to God. He tried to honor God in his way, at least. John reveals, though, what was Cain's true person, a murderer. What was his heart, a murderer, a child of Satan. This definitely gives thought to Genesis 3, verses 1 through 4, the fall of mankind. And John clearly defines the evil one in John chapter 8, Verse 44, 
we read this, Jesus clearly defining who Satan is and who he was from the beginning. John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, the father of lies. Here in 1 John 3, verses 11 through 24, this is the first of three traits pointed out by John concerning those who are children of Satan, children of the devil, not children of God. The first here is the greatest expression of hate there can be, murder. There is no worse expression of hate known to mankind than murder. Jealousy was at the root of Cain's hatred of his brother Abel. Jealousy, why? Why would God favor him over me? Jealousy was at the heart of the original sin as well in Genesis chapter 3. Why can't we be like God? Why can't we know like God? Why can't we have the wisdom of God and thereby be God? In verses 13 through 15 in 1 John 3, John transitions now from the example of Cain and ultimate hatred as one who is not a child of God to now an eye-opening encouragement, yes, an encouragement to the believers that he was writing to here, an encouragement in what? Persecution. Well, how can that be an encouragement? It's an encouragement simply because of John's making them aware what they would face, just as we must be aware today. Persecution has long been brought to the church of Jesus Christ, primarily in foreign lands. Persecution is finally coming to North America it has arrived in Canada, as we've seen in the imprisonment of pastors who follow the command of Christ to gather their people in their local church to worship Christ, to hear the commands of Christ, to submit to Jesus Christ, being imprisoned for opening the word of God in their local buildings for their local church gatherings. The time is coming. The birth pains are about to be passed. Persecution, as a follower of Christ, is not just a word, not just a promise. It is a, an absolute guarantee that as a follower of Christ, you will face persecution in this present age. In verse 13, in 1 John chapter 3, we see the reality of persecution. In verse 14, we see an affirmation of assurance. And then in verse 15, we see a stern warning given by John. Jesus makes a statement in John 15, verses 17 through 19. He says this, These things I command you so that you will love one another. These things I command you so that you will love one another. What does he say next? 
verses 18 and 19, it says this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The apostle, the apostate, rather, antichrist at work in John's time here as he wrote to these local churches. Their example is throughout this letter. They embody the world, cosmos. That term occurs 21 times in 1 John. 21 times John here in 1 John points to the world, the systems, the evil of the world, the evil forces opposing God's rule. Why does he do this? To keep the mind, the eye, and the heart of believers sharp. We absolutely have an enemy. We absolutely have an enemy in this present age. This world in which we live is not only our home, it is not our friend. We must not pursue it. We must pursue Christ. We must understand that as a follower of Christ, we will face persecution from the world. There should be no surprise when our sacrificial love is greeted with a Cain-like response. It's an important truth to meditate upon. We fail to see, as we're reminded by Peter, the fiery trial in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. We read this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Hear what Peter says there. Not in the world, not judgment of the world. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. Fire trial is upon us. How will we live? We've seen it. We've seen it in this past year. Evil is, is stood up on the stage as good. Good is torn down as evil. What do we make of it? We make of it as this. This is the world being the world. 
This, this is not a surprise to the church of Jesus Christ. It is all according to the order of God, of his sovereign reign and rule, to the authority of Jesus Christ that has been given to him by the Father in heaven and on earth. Christians are to be otherworldly. We are especially so in our love for one another. In verses 14 and 15 in 1 John 3, John is not saying in verse 14 that our love for one another earns our entry into new life in Christ, rather as our evidence of regeneration, that we are in Christ, becoming a Christ follower, passing from death to life. Remember, remember, when you were without Christ, you were a dead man or dead woman walking. Sure, you may have been walking and living and doing in this present age, but you were a dead person walking. True life is found in only one, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. Love is the sure test of whether someone is alive in Christ. R.C. Sproul once said, Christian life without love is an exercise in futility. In verse 15, John presents the second and third characteristics of children of the devil, hatred is spiritually equivalent to murder in the eyes of God. The attitude is equal to the sin act. Hate is the seed that leads to murder. Again, the example of Cain. He hated his brother. He hated the fact that God chose to favor his brother. Thereby, Cain murdered his brother. Next, let's look at verses 16 through 18 in 1 John 3. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In verse 16, this verse is the key verse in this passage. John here introduces us to the standard, the standard of love. That standard is found in Christ and what Jesus Christ accomplished, being sent by the Father to this broken, corrupt, sin-filled earth. Jesus walking this earth, living the perfect life that we or no one could ever live, and then dying the death that each of us, each of us deserve but then defeating death, claiming his lordship as Lord of all, King of kings and Lord of lords. Isaiah 53, Isaiah chapter 53, the beautiful, beautiful chapter concerning the prophetic word, concerning Christ's death. 53 verses 10 and 11, we read this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, 
Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus' love is not merely self-sacrificial. His love is an atoning love. After all, it must be, right? It can't just be that Christ sacrificed his life. It must be that his love is an atoning love, atoning for our sin. If it were not an atoning love, we would still be dead people walking in our sin, destined to an eternity in hell, not separated from God, absolutely with God, with the wrath of God forever. Mark 10, 45 says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 15, Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep. And then John 15, verses 12 and 13, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Here, back in 1 John 3, and verses 17 and 18, the laying down of life for one another, as told in verse 16, is not martyrdom. Though it could be, certainly. It's not the focus here in this passage. The focus here for John is what we see in verse 17, the world's goods. What are the world's goods? Cars, houses, clothing, shoes, food. But at the heart of it, it's money. It's money. This world, this present age, runs on money. John is seeking to help his readers understand a life in Christ equals a whole life given to and lived for Christ. Martin Luther once said, every matter, if it is to be done well, calls for the attention of the whole person. I mean, consider this. If you've ever tried to play a sport... I've tried to play many, not very good at any of them. I was a pitcher in baseball for a time. If I did not devote my entire person, my thinking, my desire for that, my doing and practice to get better at that thing, I wouldn't have been very good. I did throw a no-hitter once in high school. Listen, if we are to love as Christ commands us to love one another, if we are to accomplish this, we must devote our whole person to this activity. And that includes our money. That includes the world's goods. True Christian love is not limited to supreme sacrifices such as martyrdom, but shows up also in lesser ones. Genuine Christian love expresses itself in sacrificial giving. 
as much as sacrificial living, sacrificial giving to one another's needs. It is practical to love. It is practical love, rather, that finds motivation in helping others, especially helping one another. Listen, what John is after here is what Christ is after. When you surrender to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Christ does not say, I will follow you. What does he say? When he beckons you, come and follow me. What does that mean? It means that you are forsaking all for Christ. You're forsaking everything for Christ, not just your past life, not just your past sin, but everything in your life is now to be surrendered to Jesus Jesus Christ. That means your whole person. That means everything you have in this life. That means everything you're given in this life, every opportunity you're given in this life is to be rendered under the control of Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. We read this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The call, the call to love one another, the call to sacrificially live and sacrificially give to one another is within everyone's grasp, within everyone's reach and ability to do. From college students who have no money at all, it is absolutely within your reach to devote your time, your energy, and your effort to love one another. To those who have jobs, who have bank accounts that have money in them, there's a call to us. There's a charge given to us by Christ. Give sacrificially to one another. Seek out one another's needs. Don't wait for one another to come to you with their need. Be on the lookout for one another's needs. What is needed in his or her life? Run to fill that need. Claiming to love is not enough. Proclaiming what should be done, even quoting scripture yet without deed, equals nothing. Take time today. Go read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Paul, Paul there is addressing the church in Corinth concerning spiritual gifts primarily, but, but it applies here. It absolutely applies here. We've been given gifts by God, certainly to serve the church, to serve one another, and to love one another, but we've also been given resources 
to love one another with. Paul explains in chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, what love is. What love is to look like as a follower of Christ. What your love to one another will resemble. Not as the world loves, but as Christ demands that we love. If we polled the covenant members of the Branch Church Milledgeville asking this question, describe our church in one statement. Describe the Branch Church Milledgeville in one statement. What would you say? Maybe Christ-centered. Maybe God-exalting. Possibly even authentically loving. But what about generous? I'm not proclaiming that the Branch Church Milledgeville is not generous. What I am proclaiming is we can be Christ-centered, we can be God-exalting, we can authentically love one another as we are in Christ and as we are commanded by Christ to do, but if we be not generous, if we be not generous to one another and to those in this city, nothing else matters. Because if we're truly Christ-centered, if we're truly seeking to be God-exalting, if we're truly loving one another, then what will be at the heart of every one of those motives and cares and concerns is generosity, giving, giving sacrificially. Would our checkbooks reflect our God talk? Do we exalt God? through Christ-like love in the form of financial giving. Listen, in the New Testament, the call to give financially goes far and above your tithe. That's the command. 10% doesn't cut it anymore. Why? Because of the example of Jesus Christ. If Christ gave all, then what are we called to do as a follower of Christ? Give all. Not just meet a certain level, not just meet a certain mark on the graph, but to give all. To give everything for the glory of Christ. To give everything and loving one another, to give everything and building one another up to love Christ all the more. Be mindful of and reminded of 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. John, back in 1 John chapter 3, reveals the third characteristic of Satan's children in verse 18. They are marked by their indifference toward others' needs. I, I, in my mind, that's right under murder. To be indifferent. I don't care. I take care of me and mine. 
And as long as me and mine are cared for, are fed, are clothed, are housed, then that's right. That's good. That's just simply not what Christ calls and commands us to do. How can you know that you are a Christ follower? Throughout this epistle here in 1 John, assurance is a theme. Assurance in Christ. Assurance as a follower of Jesus Christ. Assured that you have been saved by the grace of God, that you are a child of God, not a child of Satan, not a child of the world. In verses 11 through 18, we see the first answer in this passage. The answer Those who are truly in Christ, those who have truly been saved by the grace of God, demonstrate Christ-like love for Christians. Now, in verses 19 19 through 24, we see the second answer for assurance in Christ. We possess God-given, spirit-abiding, heart confidence. As we read verses 19 through 24, we must have this in mind, this clear connection in mind. The evidence of our assurance in Jesus Christ is absolutely linked, absolutely linked to our obedience of his command to love one another. In verses 19 through 24, we see this, love one another, a heart reassured. Join me in reading verses 19 through 24. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. In verses 11 through 18, we saw primarily an external focus in loving one another. What the believer will do in the way of loving one another, as well as what the believer will not do in hating a fellow believer. Now, in these verses, to close 1 John 3, the shift is internal, a matter of the heart. The close of 1 John 3 could be summed up as follows. Because God abides in us through his spirit, he produces three very visible fruits in his beloved children. First, we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, as we see in verse 23. Second, we love one another, as we see again in verse 23. And then in verses 22 and 24, we keep his commandments, the likely commandments here being the ones focused here in 1 John 3. A heart reassured. God knows who are truly his. 2 Timothy 2, 19. And God does desire to assure his own, to assure his children, to assure those whom he has saved, to assure us of the salvation given to us by his sovereign grace. Do you have insecurities? Do you have doubts about your salvation? 
Everyone in this room at one point or another has had insecurities or doubts about your salvation. Each of us have. God is not the one who brings such condemnation, though, in the life of the believer. Romans 8.1, Paul clearly states here, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yet, who among us loves sufficiently to be free of conviction in this matter? Who among us loves one another as Christ calls us to love perfectly? Always perfectly. None of us. When our hearts do not always align with our thinking, we must absolutely trust, as John says here, that God is greater than our heart. Don't run past those words. God is greater than your heart of flesh. God is greater than your flesh that would seek to demean you, condemn you, to lead you away from the love of Christ, to remind you of what you once were. Yes, we must remind one another of this very simple yet profound fact. What is it that we deserve? What is it that we deserve to the uttermost? We deserve hell. We deserve the wrath of God for now and forever. Yet, by the grace of God, being saved by God, by the power and work of Jesus Christ, we experience the love of God, fellowship with God, and we experience a confidence in God because why? God is greater than our heart of flesh when we are agonizing over our failures to be obedient to Christ, these are not opportunities to, for, to turn further inward to self, to seek a self-help, to seek a self-answer, a self-remedy. Rather, when we have those times of agony over our sin, when we find ourselves struggling to, to see the love of Christ that is in us, that is over us, that reigns over our lives, it is an opportunity to turn outward and upward to God. To turn outward, away from self, away from our heart of flesh, to turn upward to Christ. To remind ourselves of his faithfulness. As we pray, as 1 John says here, as we pray confessing our sins, we trust that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In verse 21, so as we trust in his faithfulness, as we confess our sins before him, being reminded of his omniscient knowledge of every sin, yet he never leaves us, never forsakes us, even though he knows truly who we are, being reminded then of his omnipresent benevolence toward us, we have confidence before God. In verse 22, this confidence leads to a greater, more mature prayer life. When we see, when we know, when we understand that God is greater than our 
heart of flesh, that God is the one who gives us the confidence to have confidence in him, to live confidently in and through him when we know those things, when we remind ourselves of those things, our prayer life is matured, is grown, is rooted in Christ, not in fleshly desires. John says here that we have confidence before God, therefore whatever we ask, we receive from him. It's quite a statement. Whatever we ask, that we receive from him. It's a bold statement. It sounds a lot like something we'd hear in far too many local churches today who preach a certain type of gospel. In far too many local churches, they would omit the continuing of the statement here in verse 22. What do we see? Whatever we ask, we receive from him. John doesn't stop there. Why? Why? Why do we have whatever we ask from him? Because. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. When we keep the commandments of God, when we are obedient children of God, when we pursue Christ in all in all, in everything we do in life, in our class, in our job, in our home, in our play, when we pursue Jesus Christ, then we will follow him. We will obey his commands and thereby we will please our Father. And in so doing, when we kneel before our Father in prayer, we will not be helped to say anything other than that which pleases God. Our mind and our heart will be flooded with what God has done for us, to us, and in us, and continues to do through us, in us, and for us, and will always continue to do in and through and for us for all eternity. We utter adoration to God and for God, submission to Christ and his authority over our lives before we ever get to what it is we think we need or want. Go read Romans 13, verses 8 through 10 this afternoon as well. Love. Love is the heart obedience to the law. Its presence in a life gives evidence of submission to God. And it is such submission to God that indeed leads God to answer our prayers because they are uttered according to his will. In verses 23 and 24, to close this chapter, John brings us to a Trinitarian view of God, Trinitarian work of God in our life. This wonderful truth, a perfect truth. John answers the question, what pleases God? In verse 23, we read, believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Love one another, thereby keeping his commands. Verse 24, we read, abiding, living in God. This is found in 10 places in the first epistle here in 1 John. 10 places. John talks about abiding, living in God. John closes chapter 3, reiterating for us that these commands are not to be viewed as a checklist, as Pastor Kyle faithfully preached last week. 
This is not a checklist. The commands given to us by Christ are not simply a list of things to do on a piece of paper. Rather, it is a life to live. It is righteousness to pursue. It is holiness in Christ, in Christ in us. This is a reminder of two things. First, we are absolutely incapable of fulfilling his commands in and of ourselves. Absolutely incapable of pleasing God in and of our own flesh. And two, we have the overwhelming privilege of living, having life eternal in God. How can we know for certain that we are in Christ? Verse 24, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is the first of six references to the Holy Spirit by John in the first epistle. We'll see it again in chapter 4 and chapter 5. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, as children of God, we have a God-given, spirit-abiding heart confidence that we may now live and walk and do in confidence in Christ as we seek to reveal the living Christ to a lost world. Assurance as a follower of Jesus is known as we love one another and have a heart confidence given by God and sealed by the Holy Spirit. So what is at stake? What is at stake? This call, this command to love one another. For the Branch Church Milledgeville, as we love one another, as God's word says we must, we deepen our stand upon a sound and true biblical foundation. We here at the Branch Church Milledgeville, as your elders deeply desire that each of us, each of us, in every day that we walk, in every day that God gives us to wake up each morning, if God wills tomorrow morning when we wake up to begin a new work week, that we land that first foot out of bed upon a biblical foundation, not a worldly foundation. What is at stake? As we love one another, we build up in one another this love given to us by the Father in Christ such that in loving one another, we are better prepared to biblically love all others. It doesn't stop with us. It absolutely must begin with us. If we don't love one another, we will not be the church God has called us to be in Christ. But what else is at stake? John 13, 35 Jesus makes this statement just after he was betrayed by Judas and just before Peter denies him. John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's what's at stake. If we are to portray the gospel with our lives and with our mouths, yet not love one another, it will be a false gospel. Understand that. Even if we read scripture to someone, 
If we have not love for one another, the world will not see Christ. The Christ that we proclaim with our mouths must be seen by our love for one another in our deed and in the truth we speak to one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for an opportunity. An opportunity now, having heard your word, having read your word, studied your word in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, we now have a blessed opportunity. An opportunity to walk away from this gathering, to walk through the doors of this building into the world, to love one another, to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, to reveal the example of what true love is, and thereby, as we love one another, as we meet one another's needs, as we sacrificially live and give to love one another, then we have opportunity, great and wonderful opportunity to reveal your love, Jesus, to this city that as many as possible as you desire would know you, would find their hope in you, would worship you. Jesus, we praise you. In your name we pray, amen.